Welcome to this episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. Today we're discussing The Terminator, movies one and two, and the topic of fate. What is our fate, and do we have the power to decide it? Do the robots actually have full control? Well, we'll find out, because they and not I have control over what ads you're about to hear. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, and I'm joined by someone who's been a regular guest for a while, but I haven't had on in a little bit, uh, Becky Allen. Becky, how are we doing today? I'm doing well, uh, despite the technical difficulties that the <laughs> robots introduced trying to keep me from recording this. I, I am up and running now, and I am excited to talk about Terminator because I love these movies so much. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm glad too. And it, it's funny, I a lot of times I have to be the one to suggest a topic. I love that I asked you about things, and you were just like, oh, I've got one here. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun bouncing this back and forth. And it was fun for me because it gave me an excuse to rewatch the first and second Terminator movies. So let's just kind of start with a general thing. What is it about these movies you love so much? And, and what kind of – well, we'll get to the main topic in a second. But first, just start, let's start with what, what is it about these movies you love? Uh, there, there's a lot. Um, they were definitely movies that I imprinted on that shaped a lot of my idea of, like, sci-fi and cyberpunk in particular. Um, mm-hmm. I watched – one of the only things that my sister and I ever got in trouble for as children who were, like, good little nerdy angels um, was that she let me watch Terminator 2 when I was about 10 years old, uh, uh-huh. which she was explicitly told not to by our, our mom. <laughs> um, but she thought it was really cool, so she wanted to show me, and I loved it so much I couldn't stop myself from telling mom about how much that I loved it. Oh, boy. Um <laughs> And I had expected it to be very scary because I'm not a person who really does horror. I don't like being scared, uh, but I just thought it was awesome. And then mm-hmm. I actually think the first one is is much more of a horror movie, um, which I didn't yeah. see until a little later. But yeah, I loved it. Um, I particularly loved Sarah Connor. She was one of my absolute favorite characters of all time. Um, because it was, in the early 90s, considerably more rare to have a female action lead. Sure. Uh, and she's really interesting and i always really appreciated her and as i rewatched the movies many times as i got a little older i still really enjoyed them um really enjoyed her and then they started coming out with more movies and none of them were very good and (laughs) i'm forever disappointed by the rest of them but that's okay because nothing can take away from how great the first two movies are for sure, for sure. And as as you and I have discussed uh, at Infinitum when talking about Star Wars, the fact that we fall in love with something as a kid and then as an adult watch later versions of it and don't like it, that's completely because we are accurate judges of, of quality. It's nothing to do with what we imprint on as kids. Um, <laughs> no but these are genuinely very good movies. Like I was actually yeah. thinking like the first Terminator is a very good horror movie. This, I mean, I don't know the horror genre that well, so maybe it's not a great horror movie. It seems like it is to me. The second movie is a phenomenal action movie like i genuinely think it is probably one of the best action movies ever made it's so good i think i would agree with that i think there's uh first of all just about sarah connor i had the same kind of experience um watching both of those movies especially as a younger kid um you know you don't see that all very often and even in the first movie the way she goes from at first being the very stereotypical damsel in distress she's a waitress she you know everyone's picking on her the way she becomes I mean, her character arc in that first movie is so great in terms of by the end of it, she's the one yelling at Reese, you know, on your feet, soldier. She's taking control. She's the one fighting back in great ways. Um, And, of course, what she she and Linda Hamilton become in the second movie is just utterly badass. It's so great to see. And I – 
you know, we joke about the later movies. I think we'll talk about them at some point. But I do agree that these two have a very specific tone and feel to them that's very different. And we're going to talk about the topic of fate and destiny and how these two movies have a very kind of specific idea to them that I think those later movies kind of get away from in really unfortunate ways. I, I very much agree. Mm-hmm. And, and just before we dive into that, I think the other thing that I really like about these movies is I, I love exposition. and I do love like telling us about what's happening. And I just think in terms of there's always an interesting idea with science fiction of when you're setting a movie entirely based in the present day, but it is all about, um, you know, what happens far in the future. I always thought the movies did a great job of showing us like just enough of what it's going to be like in the future as to why it's so scary and terrifying while still keeping the movie very ground. You know, it isn't just a movie about, you know, robots fighting with laser guns in this far off future. It's very much about the here and now, uh, just about like what the possibilities are out there. Yeah, no, I I think that's definitely true. And they had such a clear aesthetic. I've realized that when I think about like what the 80s looked like, I am very specifically thinking about the first Terminator movie. And that's just my impression of the 80s. And it's it's a very specific part of the 80s. It's a very specific place in the 80s. But whenever I'm like, I want to do something that's got like kind of a, a cyberpunk tone or like an 80s tone i am specifically like and then they are in the tech noir i can't call it that but that's what's (laughs) happening i get what you're saying i'll say for me um you know i was a child who came up in the 80s and the 90s i I was 14 when terminator 2 came out in 1991 and so for me john connor and the kids he hangs out with that was like the epitome of like tween teen cool you know, mm-hmm. now I will fight to the death. John Connor is not 10 years old in that movie. I don't care what the dating <laughs> is. That is a like 13, 14 year old kid. And why his best friend is so cool and punk that he has a mullet. I do not understand. But well, other than that, like it definitely shaped that idea of like, I mean, everyone in my school was saying Hasta La Vista Baby and none of us had met a Latino person. I mean, it was just like that's <laughs> that's the power that movie had. I mean, his best friend was so cool, he was on Salute Your Shorts and Nickelodeon, which was my favorite TV show. So, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, that, that says a lot. I'm, I'm a couple years younger than you are. Uh-huh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so let's, let's talk about the specific idea that we wanted to get into, though, because there's so much about these movies we could dive into. Let's talk about fate. Um, and I'll give you kind of a chance to introduce this topic. What is it about fate in these movies that you were so interested in, in diving into? Uh, So in our outline for this episode, I just referred to it as my general thesis on Terminator. um, Go for it. Because this is what I feel is not only what makes the second movie in particular so good, but what makes all of the movies that come after it not work, uh, which is that the first two movies, but particularly the second, have a very clear viewpoint that humans do tend to destroy each other, but that they don't have to and that they can get better. And they specifically say, if people want to get better, we can do that and we can successfully make the world a better place. And the entire story of the second movie is Sarah knows about this horrible thing that's going to happen and everybody coming together to stop it from happening. And so... It's, I mean, that's she carves no fate onto a picnic table, uh, and then she goes to try and change the what she has been told is the fate of the world, and she succeeds. And then if you watch any of the future movies, they have to kind of change the premise to she didn't succeed, they just put it off longer, or it happens in a yeah. different way. 
And as soon as you say, no matter what happens, humanity is doomed and there's going to be some kind of robot uprising, nuclear fallout, judgment day, you know, nightmare future. As soon as you say that's inevitable so you can have more movies, you are undercutting everything that the second movie was saying about the world and about humanity. And so that's, for me, like, that's what I keep coming back to is the second Mm. movie is very clear where it stands on humans and what they're like and what they can do both that's good and bad and that if humanity wants to improve it can and that no horrible fate is inevitable so that for me is really interesting and i thought it would be for you as well because it's all about what's human nature like is it good or evil no it very much is and especially because it's funny we're coming up close to and we'll probably tiptoe into a topic that I have very strong feelings on generally, which is time travel and the sort of paradoxes of time travel loops. And these movies get into that and we'll touch on that. But I like switching the idea to this concept of fate because for me, one of the things I think is most interesting about what you're talking about is the idea that, yes, humanity leans in this direction, but that kind of what happens is it's the idea of if if we're on a path and one person can jump forward to see where the path ends – but then can prove to everyone else where that path ends that that might convince us to, to change a different path. Because of that, I find Miles Dyson to be one of the most interesting characters in the second movie. Because, you know, this person meets um, Sarah Connor when she shoots him and she attacks his house. And within about an hour, he goes from these people are attacking me and trying to kill me and possibly kill my son. I'm in total defensive mode to... They're proving to me that the science I've dedicated my life to might have harmful consequences all the way to I'm now going to help these people and put my life at risk and, as it turns out, die in order to stop what I was working on. And I find his evolution as a character to be so interesting because I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's that, you know, he's not wanting to build evil robot uh, tanks that will take over the world. To me, he's kind of the perfect example of one of the most dangerous parts of humanity, which is that it's not that he knows what he's doing. It's that he's not thinking about the consequences of his actions. He's not he he doesn't have to. He's part of a, you know, scientist, corporate kind of institution that wants to build these things. And who wouldn't? It looks cool. And he's not able to sort of see out where this could lead. But once he does, he's able to be like, oh, wait a minute. No, this is not right. And he changes. I think that's such an interesting idea of the way we can, if we see the consequences, maybe we can choose something different. It's so interesting and it's so important. And I think from a 2021 perspective where we've seen not, you know, AI and and Skynet and Cyberdyne, but we've seen, I'm going to say, Facebook and Twitter – Uh, which have had huge consequences on the world and who holds power and what happens and how they have, for the most part, completely refused to change, um, even understanding the consequences of what's happening. Um, To me, that makes Miles Dyson feel even more heroic as a character because he presumably could become a millionaire or a billionaire from the money that they would be making, you know, as defense contractors and... He 
he has to know that, but he still says, actually, not causing nuclear genocide is more important. And he doesn't equivocate, and he doesn't try to say, well, maybe if I do this slightly differently, we can control it, and and then it won't gain self-awareness. And he doesn't try and think of ways to still preserve it while doing the stuff he wants to do. He, He just says, oh, you're right. That's bad. Let's stop it. And that is great. <laughs> and he doesn't even say, let's maybe get this bullet out of my shoulder. I mean, he's sitting there bleeding from the gunshot wound he took when he makes this decision. That's how focused he is on it. There's so much we can dive ahead into. I'm, I'm the guilty one here. I'm jumping ahead. But let, let's back up a second. So just let's talk about fate as a storytelling concept before we get into just how it applies here. Um, how would you define fate in the kind of terms we're talking about? What does it mean when we say fate in one of these stories? When we say fate in a story like this, we are talking about here's the inevitable endpoint, and there may be some aspects of free will in it, people may be able to make some choices, but ultimately, this is what's going to happen, at least in broad strokes, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, and obviously, the, I mean, again, Sarah writes no fate as graffiti. And so she is taking a very clear stance. And as a result, the movie takes a very clear stance that fate is not an accurate concept and that we can actually change and that nothing, I mean, what's the phrase? The future is not set. There is no fate, but what we make ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that to me is really powerful because it does say things can be changed. Things can be saved. The future can be better if we work to make the future better. And that is something that I have to believe as a human being if I'm going to keep going in the world. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you need that kind of a hope. The idea of it all just being fatalistic is, you know, um, not easy to work with. I think one of the things that I like about the way you're you're explaining fate, as well as I I think what the movie is saying, is that it's not quite often, especially when we talk about time travel, is this idea of like, you know, at 8.45 in the morning on this day in this place, this person will do this one specific thing that will have all these effects. And that if you change what, you know, if you make that happen at 8.47 instead of 8.46, whatever, everything changes. Fate, I've always sort of felt as more of a, like, large, it's a kind of, like, you know, you're going to die in battle. It doesn't mean that you're going to die in this battle. It means you're going to die in this kind of way. And here it seems, and I think this is part of why for me the time travel part makes more sense, the fate isn't like that Skynet is going to go in this exact way, this exact time. It's that this is the direction that our work with machines is going to take us. This is the direction that our violence is going to take us. And so we we have to have a radical shift, but it's not quite – fate is still more generalized than often just the idea of like every moment in time has already been written. Yeah, I think I think fate is a sense of inevitability, but not a detailed – moment-by-moment breakdown of what's going to happen. Right. Now, how does that fit for you? One thing you and I have talked about a lot before is the idea of the great man of history uh, and how that can often be, you know, the idea of, like, the chosen one in fiction or, like, that there's this one person who it is their destiny. How does fate play with that idea for you? So I think, I mean, I think, I don't know that they're directly part of one another. Um The entirety of the first two Terminator movies is about the idea that John Connor is fated to be that great man, um, that he is the pivotal figure that everything revolves around because he is the one who can actually save humanity after Judgment Day. And I mean, I say save humanity, it is 
not a coincidence that his initials are JC. Like, it's... Oh my god, I have no idea how I missed that till now, but of course you're right. <laughs> um, so it's very clear that, that he is sort of a chosen one in this narrative, and that's what gives Sarah her importance, and that's, you know, what gives Kyle his importance. Um, and so it's not... I mean, to some extent, so he is he is like this destined great man or this fated great man. But one of the things that really interests me is the idea of like, if they stop Judgment Day, does that mean that he is still going to be a pivotal figure? Or does it mean that his fate has also been shifted and now, you know, 10-year-old right. John Connor can just kind of be a kid? Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes, well, I guess that to me gets into this whole idea of the time loops because the way I I first look at the movie is it does seem like the whole thing involves this kind of circular logic of time travel because you know if john connor is only fighting against john connor only becomes the great leader because someone knew that john connor had to become the great leader and went back in time to tell sarah connor and and of course john's only ever born because reese goes back like is this is this a classic time loop in terms of none of the past happens unless the future happens and and vice versa or is there another way to see this as the time loop kind of solidifies it, but it would have happened anyway. I have always taken it as the time loop solidifies it, but it probably would have happened anyway. Um, I think mm. the big question in that is who would have been John's father? Does it matter who John's father is? Right. Um, but I am also... Maybe it's a shame for somebody who's, you know, an author and who loves it and writes science fiction, but I don't care about the logistics of time travel. <laughs> That's probably much wiser. <laughs> like, I know when Endgame came out, there were people who were furious that it was just like, anyway, we're going to do time travel. There are no paradoxes. We, we're just saying that so we don't have to think about it. And I know yeah. people were mad about that because there should be paradoxes, but I was not because time travel is not a real thing that really happens. So you can make the rules whatever you want. <laughs> oh, for sure. I guess to me, like I love Back to the Future because it says who cares about the rules. And I love that, um, you know, Doctor Who says who cares about the rules. I, I couldn't care less about the physics of it. I, I just think it's interesting in terms of this fate question because – I guess for me, the question that always comes up with fate as well as with the paradox is, if you tell me that things are preordained, the question that I always ask is, who preordained them? You know, do you, do you think, I mean, this is more almost a theological question, and so it's kind of off the base, but I, does there have, when you talk about things that are fated, is it just that it's a, this is the way things will lead because that's how things go, or that there is a, um, that something has decided, like that this is the person who will do it, or is it just that this is how stuff lines up? So I'm an atheist, mm -hmm. so uh, <laughs> so I feel pretty strongly that there is no one thing or one entity or one whatever that's saying this is how it's going to go. Right. I think people very much get to decide for themselves what kind of person they are and what kinds of things they're going to do. Um, so I don't actually believe that anyone is fated to be great or that anyone is fated to be terrible. I think people are heavily influenced by their circumstances uh, and by who they know and how they were brought up. But I do think that everybody has the potential to be very good or very bad and that a lot of it is deciding in the moment how you're going to react to something. So for me, I think... 
the movies say John Connor is fated, which I'm willing to go with because it's the movie and it gets to construct the universe as it see fits. Right. For me, I I would assume the first pre-time travel iteration is Sarah is still a pretty good mom who raises John to be a pretty good person and the way the circumstances play out. He is somebody who is able to rally people and strategize and make things happen and make things work. And so people follow him and that's why he's important. And then he sends back Reese, who influences Sarah, who then more pointedly raises him to be that kind of person. But for me, I assume that there was always something underlying in him that would allow him to be that kind of leader and that it maybe was focused or trained in a specific way by circumstances, but that he was always kind of a good kid. And I think we do see in the movie, like, he is obviously reacting to the circumstances, but he is the one who says, you can't kill anyone. He is the one who goes to try to save Miles Dyson's life, even knowing what's going to happen, as soon as he figures out that his mom is going to try to kill him. Like, he's the one who won't leave his mom behind, even though it endangers his life. So I think he is somebody who has the instincts and the desire to help people and to save people. And so whatever the circumstances around him are, that's what he's going to be just because that's who he is. I really like that answer because I I, I am a theistic person. I'm not atheist, but of a very kind of progressive, you know, hands-off kind of way. I think I have the exact same... I often don't like the idea of fate for the same reason you're talking about because I often feel like once... Once someone says, like, you, this person, are fated to be a villain, you're fated to be a hero, you're fated to be whatever, we take away human agency in that. And I don't think it has to have a person, like, I don't think there has to be a consciousness that is writing fate, but I think that's often just how human minds work is, even if we're not thinking those terms, we we kind of, we kind of ascribe an intelligence that's making these decisions of what is fated to happen or that the time loop has to be this way or has to be that way. And I think it's part of why I like about these so much is that it's really breaking that all apart. It's saying that there there doesn't have to be a way these do. Um, and I, I like what you're saying there about John, that it's not that he has that some entity or just the hand of fate or whatever it is has decided he of all people shall be the hero it's that there's just things about him and how he's raised and who his mother is that will always lead him in that direction. To me, that's a much that, there's just so much more agency in that kind of a story than one where it is, you know, you have always been fated to be this person. Because if you are, then, you know, if I know from the beginning that our hero is the chosen one who is prophesied to kill the kill the bad guy, I I don't care as much because I know he's going to do it. Or there, I mean. I, it shouldn't be he, but it almost always is he, <laughs> because that fate has already decided this. So who cares what decisions they make? Yeah, no, I I think that that is, I think that's how a lot of people feel and why chosen one stories are always going to be a thing, particularly in the fantasy genre. But I think that's why you see a lot of people looking to deconstruct them or to try and avoid them, because I think a lot of people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, And then my other thing about John and the kind of leader he is and the kind of person he is, is that, like, Sarah, so in the world where we see him, where he has spent the first 10 to 13 years of his life, however old they want to claim he is, uh, in this weird childhood learning to blow things up and kind of paramilitary, like, that's not how kids generally are raised (laughs) life, that's preparing him to be a leader in a very specific way. 
But he right. also still goes back to save his mom, even though he knows that that's not the right tactical decision. Right. He does it anyway. And he's not willing to stand aside and let Miles Dyson be killed because he doesn't think that's right. But he did not get that instinct that says that's not right. We have to save people, not condemn them from Sarah. She would absolutely let people die to save him. Right. So I think some of it, like some of his skills are things that Sarah taught him. But who he is as a person is not entirely just who she wants to be. She didn't make him into this specific kind of leader. She nudged him in certain directions, but some of that is still him saying, I don't want people to be killed, so right. we're going to try not to kill them. Which I think is also helpful because I think it's also why... I mean, I look at a lot of things through the through the lens of uh, you know how trauma affects them. And I think part of what I think makes... More recently, screenwriters have discovered that PTSD is a thing and suddenly every character has it. And it's often really badly done. And I'm not saying, but I I clearly think that Sarah is written as a character in a very powerful way who's had this incredibly traumatic experience. And she's very much learned from it. But she's also become, because of it, very combative. And I, I like that you're right, that, that John is almost able to be a counterpoint of he takes all the lessons she gives him. But he has a hope about the future that she doesn't. You know, he has a hope that uh, someone like Dyson can change where she thinks he just has to be killed. And I think that's, I think that really shows kind of not a failing on her part at all. He needs her and her experience, but that he as someone who's learned it from her but didn't experience it can also now go in a, uh, can sort of balance it out somewhat. Yeah, and I think... So one of the moments that really struck me when I rewatched Terminator 2 a couple days ago that I don't remember having noticed that much when I last watched it a few years ago or, or any of the many times prior to that um, is the moment where – so they they escape from the asylum and, they, and the Terminator and they are speeding away and she reaches for him and he has this look of utter relief as he thinks she's hugging him but she's actually just checking to see if he's been hurt. And then she starts scolding him for making bad decisions and risky decisions, and he looks utterly heartbroken. And that, to me, was such a clear moment of, this kid is not just the soldier that his mom thinks he has to be. This is a kid who has like a lot of hurt and a lot of feelings, who needs those to be nurtured too, but who ultimately it's those feelings of, but I want connection, that are what drives him to be a leader. I mean, I think a, a big part of what makes the movie so powerful is the, and, and what helps to humanize the characters, I think, is the relationship that, that's very clearly a kind of father-son dynamic that develops between John and the T-800. Um, and I think you're right that part of that speaks to a, this is not a kid who has had, you know, a nurturing parental relationship. And a lot of that's not Sarah's fault in the slightest. It's the awful mental health system she gets trapped in. But, you know, between the uh, what she does get from him, from the foster parents he lives with, I think it's very clear with the way he connects with with the Terminator uh, that helps him, T-800, that he's very much hungering for some kind of parental connection in that way. Yeah, yeah. And I do think, I mean, again, it's we're not really focusing on the later movies, which are not nearly as good. But um, in Dark Fate, which came out a little over a year ago, I think it's really interesting that the T-800 in that has been able to age and grow old and has adopted a family, basically. He has mm. a a wife figure who he, as from what I remember, does not 
sleep with at any point, but he did find her and help her and has been raising their kid together who she already had when they met. Uh, And so I do think that that's something which at least James Cameron finds very interesting is the idea of this perfect father figure who will never hurt you or disappear or whatever and will always be there and protect you. And I think that's how he sees the character and the relationship between the Terminator and John as well. I also just want to do a quick aside that in terms of I think one of the biggest problems with making movies, especially earlier in the in time when technology wasn't what it is today, but even still today, is you you are still limited by the you know what you can do effects wise. And on some level, when they're making those later movies, if you want them to to have a movie where they keep making the T eight hundred go back in time, you don't have the ability to have a thirty year old Arnold Schwarzenegger play their part anymore because he's not thirty years old anymore. And so I do kind of love the idea of using science to explain why Arnold Schwarzenegger no longer looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> in the early 80s. Like that's, that alone is just brilliant movie making. <laughs> yeah, well, and that they also, I mean, that they had Sarah in that movie and were like, yeah, now she's your action grandmother. Like, yeah. <laughs> that was so cool. Like, I, For sure. I I had mixed feelings about that movie, but I, I loved seeing Sarah Connor down the line. Anyway, that was a little yeah. off topic, but I do think that it's an interesting look at James Cameron and what he thinks makes for a good father figure, which mm-hmm. is interesting. And I'm yeah. not going to pathologize <laughs> him for it, but we'll, he we'll sure whole... does think that evil killing machines that are no longer evil make for really great dads. We'll go into a whole Freudian thing on that some other time. <laughs> Let's go one more step on the fate thing, though, because I, I think I understand the way you're coming at it. I, I, I am. St- I still wrestle with time travel paradox stuff, so I'm curious how you would frame it, because I think you've got a very good understanding of how this all fits together. If the concept is that John will become John, that there is sort of, a, as you said, an original iteration of the timeline, because I think if there is, then that often breaks the whole time travel loop paradox idea. And then it's more just like, no matter how many times you go back in time, it still happens, but there was a, a first version of this. If if John will become John, even without Reese telling Sarah to raise him to be John, then wouldn't it also stand to reason that in the first iteration, Cyberdyne builds Skynet without ever having the chip from the Terminator? And because and, and I would think then that that would say that what Sarah does doesn't stop everything because there is still a first iteration of that. Am I missing something or is there a way to kind of square that? Uh, no, I don't think you're missing something. I had not thought through that additional set of consequences. I mean, I think that is correct. There mm-hmm. must be an original version where Cyberdyne does something like that. So that would imply that there could be a version that happens without that regardless. Um, right. So I, I guess that is still an open question. But again, that's the sort of thing where it's like, well, time travel logistics, what are the rules? Right. Why do we have to have rules? It's <laughs> not real science. So it can yeah. <laughs> kind of just go with what the storytelling needs. And in this case, the storytelling needed to have a clear theme of, you know, there is no fate but what we make. Right. Well, there's only five angels that can dance on the head of that pin. And I'm going to stand <laughs> by that. Well, But I, I think I like that, though, because I think for me, part of what it gets to is that that it's the decisions, not the technology. You know, I think one of the things that always, if the idea is just that this technology only exists because the technology exists, then you're just going in circles. But I always thought one of the things, like, Dyson does die, but his story doesn't. And to me, I think that you can also end this movie thinking that now, like, okay, people are going to still keep doing science. They're going to eventually maybe create something like Cyberdyne. 
but is there going to be a different awareness to it? Is there going to be that different, like that we can make the different choices? Um, and I think that 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 to me is a way of of. I, I, I like the idea that it's not it's not just that you destroy the tech, it's that you teach people this, that here's here's the danger of pursuing the tech you were without thinking of the consequences. Like one thing I always think is hilarious is all this is based on the idea that all of a sudden Skynet becomes self-aware. That also only makes sense if no one had ever thought, well, what happens if Skynet becomes self-aware? You know, that there, it just had never occurred to people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the focus on human decisions is one of the main things that the movie is about. And I think even though it does leave open the idea that maybe somebody else will later make a similar bad decision that leads to a different version of Judgment Day, which is what some of the later movies posit, right. um, that it also still leaves open the idea that maybe that won't happen or maybe those people will also learn something else or maybe it will be stopped in some other way. Um, because of the later movies, like, so I've watched Terminator 3 a lot. I really enjoy it. I feel like it's very well-produced fan fiction. Um. Is that the one where they all, where he winds up getting them to the bomb shelter at the end, even though he- Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, and I like that a lot because I liked, um, Nick Stahl's portrayal of John Connor a lot. I think of the various characters we've seen play adult John, he was by far the best. Mm. Um, but yeah, that ends with him in voiceover- sort of to parallel like Sarah's voiceover at the end of the second movie of, you know, the road is now open and for the first time we don't know where it's going, is with him saying our fate was never to stop Judgment Day, it was only to survive it. And that, to me, completely undermines everything by saying, so there is a fate, this is going to happen no matter what. Right. When even if you think, oh, people might still make bad decisions and this could still happen, that still leaves room for people might make better decisions and this doesn't have to happen. So right. for me, that's really where, where that pivot is, is it doesn't work if you say this is inevitable. It only works if you say maybe this will happen, maybe this won't. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it, it's the uh... – on other parts of this podcast, I've talked about the problem with the happily ever after kind of idea of – okay, we've defeated evil, and so that means, like, all of humanity is fine now forever. And I, I, I think you can, you know, it, it's part of why I like some of the... I'm going to just go down a whole Star Wars tangent. I'll avoid that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I always like stories that say, okay, that big evil has been defeated. What comes next? Because mm -hmm. there is often something that comes next. And I, I like the idea that it's not that... What Sarah did was to stop this iteration of Judgment Day that was going to happen... But I, th I think there's a there's a middle ground between saying Sarah and John and T-800 stopped Judgment Day, and so we now it will never happen ever again, or saying they stopped it once, but it will absolutely happen. You can never make it stop. In instead, there's a middle ground of saying, like, yeah, there was a strong possibility it would happen now. We stopped it. Down the road, there's another strong possibility it might happen. That could be stopped, too. You know, and so it's not that it, it stopped once and it's gone forever, or that you have to, you'll, you'll never stop it. It's that it's, there's going to be a crisis moment and then there's going to be another one down the road. Yeah. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So for you especially, I know that you approach these things as a writer. And by the way, I would definitely recommend um, checking out Becky's writings. We're going to have a link to uh, their, the stuff they've written in the show notes for this. Definitely worth checking out. How do you approach questions of fate? And how, how do you think these movies have helped shape the way that that, that plays out for you? Because it does seem like this is a, a topic that is just so easy for people to return to again and again. And that, as we point out, I think that often it's done pretty badly. I mean, ooh, that is a really good question. And I'm trying to think about 
how to talk about what I'm writing right now, which has no guarantee of selling, but oh. is, <laughs> is very much about sort of that idea. Sell it to um, us. We'll push the publishers. <laughs> <laughs> that would be be great. Uh, I need to make it um, coherent first. I suppose it's uh, so kind of a big, big thing to, you know, have to do. Um, so for me, I think less specifically about these movies, but what I have felt very strongly over the last few years is we've seen real sweeping horrors in the political world. And there, there are always horrible things happening, but it has felt like it has been worse, mm -hmm. uh, which may or may not actually be true, but it has felt like things were very, very bad for a while. Right. Um, I think about that, and then I think about, I'm gonna say, you know, the 30s and 40s and the rising tide of fascism and the world war that broke out in response to that, uh, which was not necessarily good guys versus bad guys, which is how we really like to think about it. It's people protecting their own power and their own whatever, which is a little bit cynical, but I think true. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think of it as something that is cyclical, um, where you have this rising tide of fascism and very bad things, and then you have pushback against that, and then things improve, and then you eventually have that rising tide again. I think about that, I think about wealth disparities, and there was the Gilded Age, and enormous disparities, and then the labor unions, and the workers' rights advocates, and people who pushed very hard against that to win a lot of protections and to really improve things for a lot of people, and now we see more wealth disparity happening, and a lot of Really, I mean, really awful things happening because rich people are very rich and they like to maintain their very rich status. Uh, and I think we are at a beginning point where people are starting to push back against that. And that's why we see a lot of people having a lot of faith in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and saying like, hey, maybe we can unionize Amazon workers. Maybe mm -hmm. we can start to, to get these protections back and make things better for a lot more people. And so I think... And this will tie back to Terminator eventually, I promise. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that there are cycles that, I don't want to say humanity goes in, I think that's a little bit too broad, mm -hmm. but that I think cultures often go in cycles where there will be something that is very bad that affects enough people that it hits a tipping point and people push against it and improve things for a lot of people and then you end up having a situation where things have been good for a while so nobody really thinks that much about it and so those things that were bad start to creep back in and to gain power and traction and eventually you reach that tipping point again right to me that feels very much like what you were describing with the idea of different decision points in terminator yeah. where it's not set and it's not fate um but there are people who make a lot of really bad decisions that could culminate in Judgment Day, but people also make good decisions that push against that and that prevent that particular Judgment Day, and there is still potential that those bad decisions could be made again, but there's also potential that those good decisions could be made again. And I feel like, for me, that's the idea, like, I don't believe in fate as anything is inevitable. Mm -hmm. I do believe that that cycle is likely to continue for a very, very long time. Yeah. Anyway, I'm writing a fantasy novel about reincarnation and cycles, so... <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and yeah, definitely um, um, definitely check out Sarah, uh, yeah. definitely check out Becky's other writings and stuff and, and you know, poke a note about how that sounds like a great thing we want to hear. <laughs> but I, I think, and 
there's, there's two things that come to mind for me. First of all, is there's a, a great quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that says that the the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And not to go too much into the specific t- fights he's talking about with that, but obviously those are very important. But part of what I like about the idea of an arc of history bending towards something is this idea that it kind of like it can lean a certain way, but it's still very influ- influenced by human actions, you know. And so that's the idea of that there, there, there can be like different trends in history and different fates or things like that, but that there's still so much to be done. Um, so much huge, so much, yeah, so much agency that can still happen. And tying it back to these stories, I think I really like how you talked about how there's different moments of history because I hadn't even thought of this until we talked about it. Both the first and second Terminator movies are written during the Cold War, while the Cold mm-hmm. War is still happening. The second one's in 1991. It's wow, we're sort of coming to the end. I think the the Berlin Wall falls in eighty nine, but still, it's I mean, John John has a line where he says the Russians aren't they our friends now? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, but even then, I mean, it was still like it was just at the very tail end of it, and the first one is definitely very much in the Cold War. And at that point, like you know, these the the, the whole idea was that humanity was on the knife's edge of a nuclear war between these two global powers at every point in time. And there was lots of writing about this idea that we were, that nuclear war between the East and the West was fated, that there was no way to avoid it. It was going to happen. It just, maybe it'd be Korea, maybe it would be Vietnam, maybe it would be El Salvador. We don't know what it would be, maybe Cuba, but it was going to happen at some point. And I feel like the first movie, especially, and to some extent the second, though, as you said, we're shifting away from it, is very much grounded in those times. I wonder if part of why the later movies go in a different direction is because now that kind of underlying truth behind how the movies were written has changed. And so now they're, they're sort of like, you know, it, it, I, the, on a different episode uh, I did, we recently talked about the idea of canon and how canon is great, but sometimes when you write things in, in different times and places, you have to be willing to adjust those and that that's okay. And I do wonder if that may be part of what happened in those later movies is that movies that were written where, the battle against machines was kind of a, you know, stand in for the thought of inevitability of a Cold War, that with the Cold War over, that they kind of maybe needed to find a different metaphor, find find a different approach to it, because it just, it didn't fit. And that's where they got stuck on this whole idea of, no, but it has to be fate anyway. Yeah, I think that um, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, I will complete sidebar, say anybody who is not familiar with uh, Stanislav Petrov should look him up because that's one of those decision points and just some guy made a real good decision and prevented nuclear war. Um, is he the one who in the Cuban Missile Crisis um, decided to stop the ship? Remind it me wasn't, uh, not the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was in the early 80s. He was monitoring whatever it was that he was monitoring for the Soviet military. He saw what looked like a missile strike and he decided to ignore protocol and assume that it was a malfunction and not an actual missile strike. So he did not strike back. And it turned out that he was correct. If he had followed protocol, they would have launched nuclear weapons. Right. So, so like that kind of thing. It it sounds like what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Sorry, you you just made me think of that. So I had to look (laughs) up his name um, and I have managed to sidetrack myself from from the storytelling. Right. Cold War. No, but Um, I. I, 
I think that that is probably part of it. Um, I do think the way we see stories has changed and the way you can see some of the evolution of like, oh, the Russians were always bad guys. And then it was, you know, the Middle East is always bad guys. And now there's a lot of like the Chinese people are bad guys. Like mm-hmm. you you see that evolution as the, the culture changes. But I also think some of it's just storytelling necessities. If you're going to keep telling stories about Terminators after Terminator 2, you have to say, well, they were wrong and Judgment Day still happened in some fashion because otherwise there's no story. Right. Um, Which is, you know, kind of a boring shortcut answer of saying, yeah, it's a writing thing. You have to do that because otherwise you don't have a Terminator story to tell. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think what it's, I think what I would say is like, it poses a really hard question. And unfortunately, I think we might agree that those those movies didn't come up with the best answer to it. You know, I mean, kind of similar to if you have, let's just pick, for example, a movie about a character who is utterly fated to overthrow an evil emperor, but then the emperor comes back in a later movie because you have no idea what else to do. No idea what I'm talking about. Totally off the top of my head. Um, but <laughs> Random off, idea you had there. Exactly. Who, who uh, knows? Check out my Star Wars Universe podcast if you're curious what I'm talking about there. <laughs> but going back to this, let's let's. I think one of the things that's most interesting and, and isn't explored much in these movies, but I'm curious your thoughts on is it because it, it does seem, again, a faded part is there's one line where they say they're, they're telling the history of what happens and says um, Skynet became self-aware. And so humanity tried to pull the plug and Skynet defended itself. And, and the clear implication is that humanity realizes that Skynet is going to be a threat and then tries to, you know, turn on, destroy Skynet, kill Skynet if Skynet is now sentient, and Skynet fights back to defend itself. The question, and this is maybe kind of getting us off on a different topic, but I think it's kind of the same thing: is why? I always kind of want to ask the question of like, why did we think that Skynet has to be a dangerous thing? To your mind, is this another one of those fate points where the idea is like, it's fated that if we have a, or not even fated, it just is reality that a sentient computer network is going to want to fight against humanity or is this another humanity decision point where we can break that fate where maybe skynet doesn't have to be the enemy we don't have to attack it so it defends itself i think it's absolutely a decision point um i think you see in sort of like like the movie cliche is there's you know a good guy and a a military guy let's take the iron giant as an example, just because I was trying to, to think of one to clarify, where you have this giant robot and the military guy is like, it's clearly a Russian satellite, we have to blow it up. And the people who are the protagonists of the movie are saying, it's not, you need to to look beyond that and see that it's a nice alien giant robot. Uh, and the military guy in his absolute fit of paranoia, who is convinced that this is a threat, launches a nuclear bomb and... That didn't have to happen. And it's the Iron Giant. It makes me cry every time. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, But I think that that's sort of the cliche is the sort of paranoid military power will always strike. And I don't know that that's necessarily true either. Again, Mm -hmm. Stanislav kind of proves that it doesn't have to be in real life. Um, But I think that's sort of the the storytelling cliche there. Uh, And I think that's why there's sort of an assumption that if it's a military thing that becomes sentient, the military will freak out and strike against it. But it doesn't have to happen that way. Um, And who who knows? Maybe maybe Skynet didn't have to be evil either. Maybe if we had welcomed it with open arms, it would have (laughs) been a nice military network. (laughs) You know, I would say probably not. 
But it could have been. We don't know. Again, uh, you know, you and I are talking about pure science fiction fantasy. The idea of um, artificial intelligence-driven networks designed by corporations have has no relevance to our own world. So that's not something we're... Um, <laughs> Knock on wood, any corporate entities listening to this, we're not trying to overthrow you. Please don't interfere with the internet the way you did a few days ago. Um, but <laughs> but no, I, I ask it in part because I think that's another one of the interesting... Uh, hmm. I don't know if this makes sense, but I think, uh, to me, a big part of fate is has a lot to do with our assumptions. You know, if we... If I assume something always is true and I always act on it, then to some extent, like, I'm fated to, to do certain ways because there's no way I'm going to challenge those basic axioms, those basic assumptions. And... That can be one of those moments of like maybe Skynet becomes self-aware, but we don't fight it. Um, on a previous episode a while ago, but we did a whole episode about the Matrix and why is it that the the Ma why is it that there's this constant theme of if the computers become self-aware, then of course they have to be the enemy and we have to fight them. And I think that's just another interesting part of what the movies raise is what is that fate, you know? And 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 could we challenge that? That leads to the other question I want to ask, because you've alluded to this a couple of times and, and the decision John makes, but I want us to unpack it a bit because this is an ethics podcast. So we know that Dyson is the one who makes the breakthroughs that leads to Skynet being created. Sarah makes the conclusion that if you kill Dyson, Skynet doesn't happen. And I think that the part of the implication is supposed to be that even without Dyson, someone else will do it. But John doesn't act... John seems... John isn't saying you can't kill Dyson because it won't work. John is saying you can't kill Dyson because it's, it's wrong. Why? I, I, I think you have a clear stance on that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I agree with you, but I'd love to hear the thinking more about, especially in terms of this idea of no fate. If Dyson is the person who leads to this terrible thing happening, if killing him does change that, does that justify it? I mean, you can certainly argue that it does, but that's only true if it there if it is inevitable that he is the one who yes. creates this and there is no other way to stop it but the whole point is that it's not inevitable and we know it's not because they don't kill him they tell him what's going on they prove it to him and he changes right. so i think john's instinct is to be empathetic and to assume people are able to change and are worth trying to change and like, again, when they attack or slash are attacked by police and he still says, don't kill them, like, he, he doesn't think people should just be killed. Right. And his his inherent belief is that people are good and worth saving. I think that's presumably why he would become the savior in the future, because he believes that and shows people how to do it, and that's very powerful. But in the present, that plays out as we don't need to kill him to change this. There are other ways to change it. And that's why they then convince him and are able to do what I think is the more important step of <laughs> blowing up all of this technology. Right. Um, because ultimately, I mean, it's hard to say ultimately because it is a movie. <laughs> but if the assumption that they then act on is it wasn't necessarily because it was Dyson specifically, it was because there was access to this technology, killing him doesn't necessarily prevent somebody else from using that technology. Right. And they all agree that the better thing to do is to just get rid of that. And that, as we've discussed, that doesn't necessarily mean that now this will never happen. It still could happen again. Presumably it happened in the original timeline without that. But it is a pretty good way of looking at it as you don't have to 
assume that somebody is your enemy just because they are doing something wrong. It is worth it to try and talk to them and reach out to them and get them to see your viewpoint. Right, to, to see their viewpoint and to see maybe the consequences of their actions that they're not seeing, which I think is such a big part of what they do with Dyson. Yeah. I really like the way you frame that because I think it, I hadn't really put it into to words before this, but I think it helps me best to explain what I think is one of the biggest problems with the idea of fate, which is once you say something is fated, then it becomes incredibly easy to justify any kind of morally gray or even morally terrible thing you do because it's fate. You know, if it, it sucks that Dyson has to die if he's innocent, but he has to die because or else these billions of people will die. You know, I mean, that that kind of thinking is a huge part of what justifies all sorts of terrible things. And, you know, the same way it can also be this person is fated to be the the great one, the leader. the the So anything that they do is OK because it's part of their fate. It's part of who they're supposed to be. Um, and I think that I hadn't really even thought of that in these terms before. But I think that's one of the really important lessons in the movie is that, you know, you part of why it has to be no fate is because you can't you can't use that to excuse any actions. And that Sarah is kind of going into that. Sarah is kind of saying, like, if if it's. Dyson's fate to do this, then then he has to die. Well, no, there has to be the possibility of change because that way you have to always give each human being that chance for themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's you have the trolley problem of do you kill people on the left track or the right track? But the correct answer is you get people off the tracks so nobody has to get killed. Right. Like, sorry, philosophers, your question is stupid. That's not what you do. <laughs> that being said, I have there is a trolley problem board game of sorts. And I'm trying to figure out a way that we that a bunch of the regular guests can play it on Zoom for our like 150th episode or something like that. So stay tuned. Um, that would be – I'm very bad at board games, but I think that would be very fun. Alcohol may be involved. We'll see. <laughs> um, so I'm just looking at over your notes. I think we've covered kind of a lot of the big things. I have one or two other small questions to hit. But is there any other kind of major topics that we haven't really dove, in, dove into much or that you want to revisit or, or touch on? I mean, I think I think we've mostly talked about the stuff that I found really interesting. Um, but I do want to emphasize again that Terminator 2, it's a movie called Judgment Day. Sarah has repeated nightmares slash visions about nuclear ap- apocalypse, and they are terrifying. And you absolutely understand why she is driven to kill people to try and stop them. But it's also ultimately a movie that says maybe humanity's going to be okay. Um, when she decides to go kill Dyson and she's you know, just carved no fate onto that picnic bench, she was looking at kids who were play fighting with fake guns. And she thinks, no, humanity, we're going to destroy ourselves. Right. And then at the end, she thinks, hey, maybe if a Terminator can learn to value humanity, humanity can also learn to value humanity. Right. So it is, for a movie about a nuclear apocalypse, a really optimistic movie, <laughs> and I love that. What do you think? I love that because I hate gritty movies that are just gritty for the sake of being gritty. I just, <laughs> no. You are not the grim dark. Um, <laughs> no, and I think that's really true, especially because, and we've barely talked about this, but one of the other major themes about uh, the second Terminator movie is not only that can humanity learn that, but that robots can. You know, and that the, the real, I don't like the word humanizing because it sort of puts human as like the ideal, but the the ability of the T-800, of Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, to be able to learn to relate. And there's that beautiful line at the end where he says, like, I now understand why you cry. Um, and, it, you know, anybody who's watched the character of Data from Star Trek over seasons and seasons, not, you know, gain, 
be able to understand emotions, might either love this or hate this. Like, why is it so easy for him? But it, it is kind of that moment of that if even, you know, this robot designed to be a killing machine can come to understand empathy, basically on a, on a most fundamental level, then anybody can. And I, I, I find his, you know, there's, there's a certain sappiness of like the, the robot and the kid learning to love each other. But it's a, it's a nice story. And to me, there's so much hope in that. Yeah, absolutely. I think another moment where John goes out of his way to say, Sarah, your worldview is wrong, uh, is when they're looking at the neural whatever, and they shut down the Terminator so that they can switch it to the mode where it can learn to learn, mm-hmm. um, which had been turned off by default by Skynet. Uh, and Sarah wants to use the chance to just smash it and not have it wake back up, and John won't let her, uh, because he thinks that even the Terminator is worth saving and that it can learn and be better. And importantly, the movie bears him out. He is correct. His faith in not just humanity, but in sentient beings that have consciences is that they can be better. Right. Um, And the fact that he, that's the moment where Sarah lets him make a decision and that his decision is the right one is very important. Yeah. No, I I think so too. And I like, and in some ways, the idea that if T-800 can learn the consequences of their actions, then theoretically so could Skynet itself. Um, and this I mostly love because it allows me to to bring in my – I love these movies, but my personal favorite of Supercomputer almost starts World War Three than doesn't. Have you seen War Games? No. If I did, it was when I was very young, so I don't really remember, but I don't think I have. You, you might really enjoy it. It's it's very 80s. It's early 80s. It's very Matthew Broderick. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, watching someone in 1982 show off being a hacker is kind of phenomenal. Um, but it's this great movie, but it, it's the same basic concept. There's no time travel, but it's about, like, a Skynet-type computer. And funny, it's because, actually, people are so freaked out about the idea of a Stanislav person that you mentioned that the idea is what if we hand over all nuclear weapons to a computer so that we don't have the potential for human error like that um even though that's clearly not human error but that's kind of the point of the movie um but that that forgive me spoilers for a movie 35 years old here um I'm trying to it's a great movie people should watch it I'm not gonna spoil the ending of it but 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 there's this idea of machine learning and how can machines learn and that can machines learn consequences can machine learn learn empathy and that there's a lot of hope to be found in that so Different topic, but yeah, definitely go watch War Games. Everyone in your audience, everyone in the audience who hasn't, and I feel really old now that most people probably haven't, but that's another story entirely. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to touch on quick, and I just, I, it's a small little detail, but I think maybe it reveals different feel, feelings on this, because you and I wrote very different things in the notes. The end of both the first and the second movie happen in the perfect place. The first one ends in... You know, they just so happen to be running through the streets of Los Angeles or whatever there is. I think they're actually out of Los Angeles um, near where her family cabin was trying to get away. And they wind up wandering into a a robot factory so that she has the technology. She can pull that lever, crush the T-800 and that great machine. But now the, the chip has been left in the perfect place for it to be found by the people who need it. Later, we go into a second iteration at the end of the second movie. And they just happen to wind up in a place that has basically molten metal, the one thing that can be used to destroy the T-1000 and the T-800. And I wrote, eh, to me, coincidences like that are kind of bad writing. And you wrote very good writing in the notes. Talk more about what you meant there. 
Uh, I, it's good storytelling. You want your climax to happen at a place that's exciting, that gives the heroes the tools that they need to do the things they need to do. Uh-huh. I I can understand feeling like it's cheesy, but you you want to see characters in a cool setting doing cool things. That's fair. Um, but I do think, like, with the first movie, if I, I, I did not watch for this in my recent viewing of it, so I could be misremembering, but I believe they are specifically running into a Cyberdyne factory, and it has only been mentioned in passing that it was a Cyberdyne system, and to me, if that actually happened, which I am not 100% sure if it did or if I just thought that at some point, um, but, like, that's actually a really cool, subtle way of saying this is part of a time loop. Mm. Um, I I may have imagined that because I think it would be cool. So I, no, I, th- I think that is what happens. I, th- I, th- I think you're right. And I think we just have different views on time loops then. But I, yeah, I think that's, that, that's the case. Um, um, but yeah, and then in the second movie, I just think it's really like it's tight writing. Everything that happens in there is stuff that has been set up and has been lampshaded. The, the different ways that the Terminator can reconstitute itself and mm-hmm. that it can mimic the floor, which is what it starts to do when it's out of control. Like, yes, it is a helpful coincidence that they're in a place that can do the thing that they need it to do. But to me, that that's just, you know, the gun on the mantle going off in Act 3, that was very clearly introduced in an earlier section. Right. Like, to me, that's just typewriting. Yeah, Chekhov's liquid metal. I can understand that. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> and No, and I, I get that. I think for me, I always would much rather those things not... I guess there's two levels of it. For me, and, and I will say this, I'm not a writer, so I'm very much Monday morning quarterbacking here, so it's very possible that I don't, you know, know just how difficult the craft is, so I can be incredibly critical. I think I always would prefer, like, if there's at least a line of them saying, like, hey... We need to find a place that has this kind of, you know, where there's some degree of intentionality instead of it, they just happen to find on the one mantelpiece in a million that has the gun that they need, that kind of a thing. Um, See, to me, that becomes lampshading, and it's like, okay, we get it, nod and wink, yeah, you know, you're putting it in the place that's convenient. I would much rather have a story that just puts them there, and it feels natural, but it mm-hmm. sounds like you just feel like it's kind of too easy, which well, is I guess, fair. I guess here's the thing, is, I think sometimes it is, and sometimes it is. It's more the question of when your story is about the possibility of fate, I feel like any co- any coincidence now becomes suspect. Does that make sense? Because now I wonder, like, is this yeah. also part of fate? Like, Well, I mean, and I think in the first movie, so I do think the first movie has a different outlook than the second movie. Because um, in the first movie, they are not trying to stop fate. Right. They are literally trying to keep things exactly the same. The point is not to, you know, stop the Terminators from ever happening, it's to keep Sarah alive so John can be born so that he can save the world after the fact. Right. And so I think in that context, it them running into a factory because that's where they happen to be, and it turns out that's the Cyberdyne factory that will eventually lead to the rise of the Terminators, is part of what that movie is doing. Mm, it, yeah. it is a little bit more suspect in the second movie. Yeah. I will give you that. <laughs> that's fair. Well, that actually leads to... Um... There's at this point a whole large like Terminator oeuvre, you know, in terms of like the there's been a couple of t- I think I think there's been two TV shows or there's only been one. I remember the Sarah Con- Con- Sarah Cron- yeah. Sarah, Sarah Connor, Connor Chronicles. Chronicles. Thank you. Hard to say. Yeah. Um, I think that's the only one. Well, so my question is, I, I think I've seen all of it, but you probably have a much better memory of it than I do. Has there ever been a version of the story in which either Sarah or John is successfully killed, but someone else? Um, because I think that's another question of the whole fate concept of, do you, like, I mean, Sarah Connor shouldn't get killed because they're good people, but is there another version of the story in which they do get killed, 
but someone else emerges because again challenging the no fate idea that it's not that if john doesn't emerge then no one ever will and humanity will get wiped out by skynet do you know have they ever explored that as like another possible future that like could have happened um a little bit so you are giving my memory way too much credit okay (laughs) um i know terminator 3 really well uh because i i I own it on dvd i really enjoy it i don't think it's great but i really enjoy it but again i enjoy it as fan fiction of a series that i like not as a continuation of that series listen i'm trying to find a way Um, to work gossip girl in here okay there's no shame (laughs) um i don't remember uh salvation or genesis at all i remember thinking salvation was terrible but i don't remember why uh i remember thinking genesis was fun but didn't but not good which is the one Um, christian bale because that's the one i remember that's salvation okay um but dark so dark fate did you see dark fate when it came out last year year ish ago i don't i think that's the one i haven't seen so i it's so it's the closest i think to what you are describing Mm -hmm. um do you mind if i spoil the premise i've already spoiled a little bit of some stuff earlier so it picks up right like like a month after terminator 2 ends using cgi to de-age arnold schwarzenegger um, and it has Sarah and John, and now they are safe and happy, and they have gone away to a resort somewhere, and a different T-800 comes in and kills John. And it's too late for it to make a difference, because, you know, he had already been sent back in time in the future that is now no longer happening, or whatever. Um, but... So it's too late to make a difference. That particular iteration of Skynet is never going to happen. But it was his programming and he did it. And then he just leaves. Like, he just walks away. Um, And Sarah is devastated, obviously. And what she realizes is that there is no fate, but that humanity does keep making the same stupid mistakes over and over again. Periodically, Terminators from other versions of the future get sent back to try and do the same thing to other people. I think it's implied particularly other women whose children will eventually, presumably in that version, save the world. Um, And her thing is that she just finds them and destroys them. And so... That's kind of awesome as a concept. It's it's pretty cool. Um, And then she's she's not actually the main character of the movie. The main character of the movie is this woman named Danny, who is being stalked by a Terminator. And a human who has augmented abilities is sent back to protect her, who is a woman named Grace, who is the Kyle Reese. Mm-hmm. And it is criminal that they don't make out. They Aww. should fall in love. That's what the trope is. I feel very cheated that we did not get an Come actual on, love story between Danny and Grace. How how dare. I hope I have their names right. It might not be Grace. <laughs> I think it is. That's fair. Um but absolutely criminal. Uh, but Sarah shows up to help them, and in, through the course of it, they discover that the T-800 that killed John is also aware of what's going on and comes to help them defeat this particular version. And it turns out, like, spoilers, none of the- it was what I assumed from the get-go, so I don't feel that bad about spoiling it. But anyway, the spoiler is that Danny is not the mother of the savior. Danny herself is the savior. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, which I thought was a nice, like, yeah, cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's sort of the story of Dark Fate, and it was meant to be a soft reboot. Right. And it did not do well, and so it is not a soft reboot, <laughs> but it does bring back Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor, and she is amazing. <laughs> um, and it is directed by James Cameron. Mm-hmm. So, like, 
the action sequences are all really tight and really good. So that it does sort of a similar thing to what you were asking, which was the point of this whole tangent in which I described an entire movie that you have not seen. No, I mean, um, what I will say, both because it sounds fun movie making and because it really answers this fate question in a way, I kind of like the idea of Skynet playing whack-a-mole with the idea of being like, <laughs> like they keep being like, oh, okay, you're the savior. We kill him. Wait, no, that one's the savior now. Wait, no, that's not the savior because it also gets to this, I mean, that's another great idea of challenging fate is that it's not. And again, here, maybe what I'm kind of leaning to is that I, I'm much more OK with a movie that's about the idea of like history is going to lead in a particular direction generally. And so it might look like fate, but it's not an individual. So it's not that John Connor will lead a rebellion. It's that if robots take over, someone is probably going to come along to inspire humanity to fight back. And no matter how many times you go back in history to try to kill that person, someone else will take this on, you know? And, and and you can get into all these kind of ideas of history of that. And like, you know, there's been 8 million documents of, you know, German history written to try to analyze, like, if Hitler hadn't come along, would someone else have taken Germany and done terrible things? And that, you know, th there's so much you can get into there about, like, the culture versus the individual people, both good and bad. Um, and I... You know, even bringing up the Hitler ideas, obviously, I mean, that's such an extreme example that I don't want to um, use that to caution with anything else. But the I just mentioned that because that's one that gets talked about all the time. The point being that I like this idea of a story where, yes, John Connor is the one who in this iteration of history does the thing. But killing him doesn't mean that that thing doesn't happen in history. It's possible that someone else emerges. It's possible that they don't. And, and you just have to see what happens. Yeah. So I think, I mean, if... I would I would pretty much recommend Dark Fate. Um I it's it's also difficult because it's still is like well those in you know Terminator 2 was a great movie anyway. John dies 2 weeks later. Like <laughs> No, why? But the why is so that you can have a soft reboot. Vader killed um, Palpatine. Let him have that. Yes. Exactly. Um so I don't I don't love that as a setup, but I do like the characters who are introduced, I thought Danny was fine. Um, I thought Grace was fantastic, and I thought Sarah was fantastic. Um, and, and I think I, but yeah, but it does for me. It still does feel a little like cheating and saying like, "Oh yeah, there's no fate," but like, there's kind of fate. <laughs> well, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and just I mean, in terms of that, I, I think one of the skills that I have learned over time, and I think it's a really helpful thing to do, is to be able to say like, "Okay, this thing might not fit the canon that I know." But it still can be a fun story on its own. I mean, I love the Mad Max movies quite a lot. I also think there's this really awesome, amazing movie called Fury Road in which it, in which is an amazing story. And there's a character in it named Max who happens to be quite angry a lot. It's not a Mad Max <laughs> movie by any stretch of the imagination. I don't care. It's an amazing movie. And so I'm happy to sort of be like, okay, Dark Fate. Cool. There's a guy named John Connor in it. That reminds me of another movie I've seen about a Terminator. Doesn't matter. Different movie. Like, I'm okay doing yeah. that. Yeah, no, and, and that's pretty much how I feel. Again, li like I keep saying about T3, it feels like it's pretty well-produced fan fiction. Mm -hmm. It's it's fine. I like it. I loved that they brought back Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It it was well-made. I liked a lot of the decisions in it. To me, it I still feel very strongly that the actual Terminator canon ended with T2. Yeah. Well, and I think it's funny. We just did this episode about like breaking canons and stuff, and we talked a bit about the corporate side of it. And I, I think that... There's a whole other episode we could do about how Hollywood right now loves franchises and loves properties. And part of the problem with a franchise is you can't ever end it. Because if you do, then you have to stop making movies about it. 
Um, and I think this is, you know, Terminator 2 to me is a great example of where like they put a very definitive end on the story. And then we're like, wait, let's make more of these. These make a ton of money and they're fun to make and they're good movies. But you're right. I wish more people would pay more attention to like, you know, you write this particular script, now seal it and be like, if we make this movie, you don't get to make any more or else we totally change the ending and that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, that's that's a corporate thing. And I do absolutely get why they do it, both because it, they make money, although Dark Fate did not particularly, mm-hmm. um, but also because people love a franchise and because it's a really cool world. It has a lot yeah. of really good concepts in it and being able to see the different iterations of the Terminator where you've gone from it's an unstoppable robot with big guns, too. It's an unstoppable robot that can be liquid metal, too. It's an unstoppable liquid metal robot that can also control other machines, too. All of the different versions. Like, I think I think that's cool. Yeah. But also, none of them are that good. And as I said in my general thesis, none of them can be that good because in order to continue the series, you have to undermine what made the second movie so good. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a really good way to put it. And I think that's a, a really good stopping point. So, um, <laughs> You just say that because it's been an hour and a half. <laughs> an hour and 14 minutes and 24 seconds at the beep. Beep. Um, it won't actually be that because I'll edit it a bit, but it's about that time. But no, it, it's, yeah, good time to wrap up. Um, are there any other, la- there's one last comment I want to make though. Is there any other last things you want to touch on? Uh, I think I think that was really kind of my last thing to touch on. I've enjoyed other Terminator media. I remember really liking the Sarah Connor Chronicles. I don't remember a single thing that happens in them, so mm-hmm. who knows if that memory is accurate. Um, but it, I, I enjoy the other Terminator movies, but I just think because Terminator 2 is so good and so final and has such a clear viewpoint, you can never create another movie in the franchise that's going to be that good yeah sorry no, i think it makes sense and i think that i think that's kind of a good good final point of that franchises are great but sometimes it's, it's important to understand especially in a story about fate you know that you have to really ask when are you undermining the main things you're talking about um one little last point i wanted to make totally disconnected from all this but um it's been on my mind a lot recently after watching some other things and so very relevant to terminator 2 um just as kind of like a, a a note to people making movies like this, I am so glad that we're sometimes getting movies that show the fact that people in mental health institutions are not always the best, but they're not also always terrible institutions. I, I'm speaking here as someone whose life was saved by some time in them. I would we're getting into a very different diatribe, but there's a scene in T2 that bothers me because it's you know the 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 healthcare worker just is horribly abusive and and um basically tries to rape sarah connor uh in a very difficult to watch scene those moments absolutely happen i'm glad they're happening i'd really love to see some movies where they don't happen just because like there's enough stigma about mental health care in this country already completely separate comment but i just didn't want to watch t2 without like not commenting on that because it just happens at this point especially in a science fiction kind of movie if someone goes into a mental health institution because no one believes them about the thing they've seen you can guarantee someone's going to do something like that. And it just, they're not always like that. Yeah. When, when we watched the movie when I was 10, that was the one scene my sister wouldn't let me watch. Mm, yeah. Understandably. I mean, it's, it's very adult hard content to it's, watch. Yeah. No. And, and you are absolutely right about that. So. Yeah. So cool. Well, uh, Becky, thank you so much for being a part of this. This has been such a great uh, uh, time to have you on and such a great topic. We've got a couple others lined up for you, but I'm really glad you chose this one. Um, for folks who are like, wow. Becky Allen seems awesome. I want to hear more about what they have to say and, and things like that. 
where can people find both your your published work but also other stuff you're doing on podcasts writing stuff like that uh so the main place to find me on the internet is twitter i am allreb on twitter a-l-l-r-e-b um my books are fantasy novels uh bound by blood and sand and freed by flame of and storm wow i can literally see them across <laughs> the room from where i am sitting and could not remember the title uh bound by blood and sand and freed by flame and storm um that are books about people making better decisions than the ones that they were told they had to make uh and being able to save the world from doing it uh among many many other things um and if you want to i don't really blog anymore but you can find some old blogging that I did on <laughs> BeckyAllenBooks.com, uh, including, I think, at least one thing about Terminator, which I will send to you if it is still up. Yeah, I can. hope it is, because uh, otherwise that was a silly thing to say. <laughs> but yeah, mostly you can find me on Twitter uh, and you can read my books. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, for our listeners, what do you think? We'd love to get your thoughts. There's obviously so many ethical questions that are brought up, so many time travel questions, um, so many questions about the mullet of John Connor's friend. Like, Whatever it is, let us know what you think. He's redheaded too. Like, come on, give a ginger some more love. Um, let us know. Easiest way to find us is The Ethical Panda. Uh, TheEthicalPanda.com is my website. I have all my contact information there. Facebook, Twitter. You can also find more information about this and all the other podcasts I and many other great people do by going to StrandedPanda.com. Uh, there you'll find podcasts about Star Wars, Star Trek, the MCU, DC Universe, all sorts of great things. There's a bunch of episodes that Sarah... Uh, I don't want to keep calling you Sarah. I'm associating with Sarah Connor. <laughs> I mean, if you confuse me with Sarah Connor, I will only find that flattering. There you I go. promise. There you go. There's a number of great um there've been a number of great episodes that I have done with Becky in the past, especially on Star Wars, but on other stuff too. A lot of great contact there. Definitely check it out. So on behalf of myself, Becky, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>